You're listening to the Laugh Factory Podcast Network. For more shows, visit the podcast page at laughfactory.com. It's the after laugh, after laugh. Welcome to the after laugh, after laugh, after laugh. <laughs> after laugh, man. <laughs> Go ahead, pull up a chair. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to the After Laugh. I'm really excited today. Uh, I have my friend. We're friends-ish. Yeah, we don't know each other that well. (laughs) But uh, Todd Dorham, how you doing, man? I'm great, man. I'm happy to be here. One of the reasons I liked you from the beginning was because before the first time we met, I think it was Long Beach Laugh Factory, maybe. Yeah, it was. And you approached me, and you're like, "Hey, man, like I saw you perform at Chocolate Sundays, I believe." Yep. And you brought down the house, and I just want to say that was really cool, and I like you as a comic. And, you know, comics are so loath to ever compliment another comic unless they're homies. Yeah. So the fact that you did it out of the blue, I was like, this is like a confident guy. This is a good guy. And then I've, you know, I follow you on social media a little bit, and I know that you're also a religious guy. Yeah. And you have a strong moral ethic. And I was just like, man, I want to, I want to talk to this guy. And one of the things that we're going to get into right away, if you don't mind, is, uh, we 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 both deal in sort of urban rooms yep. and then mainstream rooms uh-huh. and i know that you do a lot of urban rooms yeah for and sure part of the reason that you do urban rooms other than your experience with hanging out with the black community is you are in fact black technically yeah, yeah. Uh, technically i mean you are black yeah uh but if people don't know todd very handsome guy by the way same to you if i were to look at you i would say you are italian or jewish or just an American frat guy, yeah. you know? So I've always found that idea that is, I guess, I don't know if that's a predicament for you or what, but I've always been fascinated with the idea about people who are of one race and sort of pass for another race. And particularly it's been in the news recently, Rachel Dolezal, uh-huh. the NAACP, and that woman, the Jewish woman from Kansas City, who I said- I did not she, hear about her. You, so she said that she was, um, black i think she started saying she's puerto rican then she said she's black and she started speaking at forums and i think somebody found out oh yikes and they were going like hey we're going to out you so she came forward and made a statement and um it's very interesting so i'm curious what so you're kind of on the other end you are a black man who if you wanted to um you wouldn't have to address it embrace it talk about it but it does put you in a unique perspective that i would say probably one percent of the population can very few and the way i like to explain it is like i have white skin i know what i look like i have dark curly hair if it grows out it's a full afro if i grow up my facial hair it's like a full like afro essentially on my face so it's like a very curly nappy hair on both sides but i know that like my skin color to the general public represents one thing is that i look white but i also know growing up And everything about how I was raised, all the culture that I learned growing up as a child was on the black side. Like, I don't know hardly as much about any white culture growing up as I do about black culture. Like, my dad was very, I would say, for the lack of a better term, militant about that. Yeah. He, growing up, I mean, he was a fundraiser for the NAACP. My grandfather had to have the NAACP back him up on a... Uh, racial issue at work where he got into a fight with another member of a union over something. The union tried to kick him out over the color of his skin because they found out that he was black. It became this big, massive issue. There was like celebrities that had to get involved. So like everything I learned growing up was about the black experience in this country. And then I grew up in Redonda Beach, which is a suburban white neighborhood. Sure. So obviously all of the cultural jokes that I would hear from people who are racist, you know, were along those lines and like trying to figure out when and where to insert myself in those scenarios without compromising who I am. Yeah. So, but I did want to get back to us originally talking because the reason I, I complimented you because I found your original set to be amazing. I thought the fact that here's a, a white guy in a black room, absolutely crushing a predominantly black crowd is so special. I just thought you you killed it that night so hard. I was like, damn, if this guy did that. 
I want to do that one day. I want to go on Chocolate Sundays and, and rip like Bill did. And then we were on the same lineup, and that was a moment of pride for me because at that time I was probably only a couple years into stand up. Yeah. Now we're on the same lineup. I'm like, I guess I'm actually like making some headway in comedy, <laughs> yeah, you know? For sure. And then we both had great sets that night, and it was just to see you kill it in that room. Black folks will give it up. For sure. If you're funny, they're giving it up. Yeah. I don't care where, if you're in the office, if you're at a family party, if you got jokes, they're going to laugh. Yeah. If you don't have jokes, they're not going to laugh. The most honest audience of all time. Yeah. And when you killed it that night, I was like, man, it would be, it would feel so like special to, to do that room like that. And I haven't got to do it yet, but I want to do it. Oh, you will. I'll put it in in a word to Lonnie as well. I would love about it. it. Um, It's been a real interesting thing for me because. I think we talked about this briefly, and I in my I joke I go my high school was seventy percent black, thirty percent terrified. My first <laughs> girlfriend was black. I was the only white guy in all black football team. Wow! And so my experience was very much about race. Yeah. And I'm not saying it was a, a an experience about racial uh, sort of harmony. Yeah. It was very divisive in my high school because. Um, when I started dating this black woman, my parents, my dad was a born-again Christian, Republican. Yeah. He told me it was against the Bible to be with a black woman. And this is a weird, when you're a senior in high school, go like, wow, dad, you're fucking racist. He's like, no, no, I just believe in the Bible. I'm like, uh uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So I had to deal with that on one end. And the other end, all the black guys on the football team, when I was dating this the, this black cheerleader, they wouldn't talk to me anymore. Can't blame them. You, she was probably fine. They probably wanted oh, her too. They sure did. Yeah. And I remember we, me and Kira started, when we first started talking, I told one of the starting running backs, I was like, I heard them talking about Kira, like yeah. the other black football players. I was like, what would you guys say if I started dating Kira? And they were like, I will bow to you, man. I will say, <laughs> follow the leader. I was like, all right. Next thing you know, Kira's wearing my varsity jacket Love around it. the high school, and they just stopped talking to me. So, um, And then they would call her up, be like, what's going on, girl? You want to hang out? Because they were like, if she's dating this this measly cracker, yeah. who's like a second string wide receiver, like <laughs> obviously she wants to date the quarterback. So um, it, it was. I mean, they didn't they didn't do anything bad to me, but it just it, I don't know what it represented to them because I can't speak from their experience. But it obviously was something that was not celebrated, to say the least. Oh, I think this conversation about quote unquote interracial relationships is fascinating to me. Yeah, like there is no such thing. You're in love with this person. They're in love with you. And that settles it. It's ridiculously hard to find someone to like you, let alone love you, that regardless of what skin color they're at, is should be just a plot of that two random people found each other and like each other. Yeah. That's a titanic accomplishment to begin with. Yeah. And the fact that they are together and having a family or a marriage, oh, despite the obstacles to major it. Major obstacles. Yeah. Well, I'll just give you my parents' background. So... Um, a joke I have about my dad is I tell people that I'm uh, that my dad's black and they look at me and I'm like I can tell from the looks on your faces okay let's back off the prejudice here I'll give you the melanin breakdown my grandfather has a skin tone of LeBron James my dad has a skin tone of James Earl Jones and I look like James Vanderbeek <laughs> so it kind of broke down over the years but yeah my dad's light skin and he uh, he met my mom on an airplane, and they fell in love. Yeah. Now, my mom is from upstate New York. My dad's from, from L.A. He went to Compton High School. And when they got married, my, my grandparents on my mom's side refused to go to the, to the wedding because wow. my mom was marrying a black guy. Yeah. And I look at my skin. I know that I have white skin, but I also know the experiences that my dad went through were told to me from certainly his perspective and i my dad was my hero he's my football coach he was my you know that's my guy and he went to a historically black college university as a light-skinned black dude in the 60s tennessee state okay so as a light-skinned black guy in the 60s he was catching hell from dark-skinned black guys yeah and from white people he was right in the middle but he knew his identity as a black person because he felt it from from every angle yeah uh, additionally, in the couple of years that he went there, they took a road trip to Mississippi to play a, a football game, and they got pulled over by a caravan of members of the KKK. Wow. So he's got his – everyone got dragged out of the bus, all members of the football team and everything, 
They have dogs biting them. They have my dad had a shotgun in his mouth. You know, those are traumatic Whoa. experiences. Traumatic experiences that white people have not had to go through on account of their skin color. For sure. And you cannot tell me that that kind of traumatic experience, if not resolved by some sort of professional, does not affect how you think about the world the rest of your life. Yeah. So when my grandparents didn't attend the wedding, then he looked at that like, you know, you're, you're attacking me as a person in general. Now, my grandparents, that, that was just an old mentality. Old programming. Old programming. They're not bad people. They came around later on in life. but Once they had grandkids, right? Once they had grandkids. You know, it wasn't their fault at the time, but like that's what my dad held on to. And you can't blame the guy for that. Yeah. You know? Then uh, in, in Redondo Beach, you would think like, oh, this is Los Angeles. This is the beach community. Super liberal. So you'd think that. Yeah. <sighs> we had dead animals on our front, front door. We had a swastika painted on our, on, our, on our garage by people who lived on our street. So, and this was in the 80s. I was about to say, you're, because, how old are you? I'm 39. 39, okay, yeah. I was born in 81, and I lived in Redondo Beach my whole life growing up. Yeah. So, this is in the 80s. But you think about the timing. 13 years before that, 1968, was when Martin Luther King got killed. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, the Civil Rights Bill passed. Yeah. So, what are we talking about when we think that these are ancient memories of racism? 13 years later, I'm born... Four, four or five years after that, we're having these issues growing up. And it's just, so the idea that like these are ancient memories or like this is a long ago past, it's just not true. Yeah. It's just not true. I mean, even in Virginia, where I'm from, I know that, what's the term, miscegenation? Miscegenation is an interracial marriage, I believe. Oh, wow. Or, yeah, my parents' marriage would not have been even legal in certain states. Yeah, in '76, it was. It was. There's a movie about it with Joel Edgerton, who people say I look like uh, about it. I forget what it's called, but um, that's fucking. They were called, they were called the Loves. The, yeah, the, 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 yeah. The, 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 what's the name of the movie? I forget because I've, I've seen it. It's the. Lo- I think it's the Loves or Love something. His last name was the white guy married a black woman. Yeah, his last name was Love. Yeah. A fantastic movie. Fantastic movie. And that was 76. Again, like very recent. Yeah. I think that people forget that uh, there has been progress. Oh, tremendous progress. Yeah. Which 100% nobody can deny. But the way I look at it is like this. My dad, he if, if he was alive, he'd be, I want to say, 82 right now. So hypothetically, whoever had the shotgun in his mouth would be maybe the same age. Maybe maybe a little bit older. But regardless, that person has a son right now who's maybe 45, 50, who has another son who's maybe 13. Yeah. And if that ideology has not been cut off at the person who held the shotgun, it's still living for sure in his that person's offspring. Yeah. So, and because it's not that long ago, that mentality still exists in just in just different ways. Yeah. I, w- I do think about that. I think about who was the person who had the shotgun? Where is that person now? I think about that very often. Yeah. Probably more than I should, but like I, I and not in a begrudging way, in a way that's like, I hope that person understands black culture enough to embrace and like them because of, for the simple fact of how much they're missing out on. Yes. I mean, you grew up around black people. How much fun are they to be around when they mess with you? Oh, it's the best. As a matter of fact, part of my in in Chocolate Sunday and part of the reason why, I'm not going to say it was easy for me, it was actually easier for me when I started than it is for me now in a weird way because I am more removed from black culture now than I was in high school. Yeah. You know, my life since high school has been less and less uh, exposed to less and less large groups of black people, right? Yeah. But I also knew that in high school, the best reward ever was to get a black girl saying, you stupid. You stupid. <laughs> Whatever black girl was like, you stupid. I'm like, yes, that just she made my you. day. She thinks you're hilarious and she probably thinks you're cute also. <laughs> if she says, you stupid. Yeah, you stupid. Oh I, always, I just wanted a black woman to say I'm stupid. And even today, if I'm at Chalk Sunday and some black woman's looking at me like not laughing, but one she'll you stupid. I'm like, all right, I got you. Got you. <laughs> yeah, Which yeah. Which is hilarious. But it does become a problem for me when I'm performing sometimes because I was supposed to do this show Kevin Hart had this special called Next Level. I don't know if you know Next Level. Yeah, of Level, course. Right? So I was tapped to do that. Oh, nice. And I 
kept saying, hey, when do you want my material by before we shoot? Because I was still trying to figure out my set. Yeah. Like, what would be the best set for this audience? And I watched a lot of the Next Level specials. Yeah. And it was very urban. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I can sort of do what I was doing my first five years, which was a lot of like real physical stuff and goofy stuff. Uh, a lot of stuff that involved race, but I was in this trip where I was like, I just want to talk about what's going on with me right now. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with PC culture and dating a vegan. Yeah. And shit like that. And, um, I love your vegan joke. So, well, so I was like, that's going to be the, the centerpiece of my set. Yeah. It doesn't have to deal with race. Yeah. But I was like, I'll also put in stuff about the old school race stuff and kind of like try to mesh it in. So I had a bunch of papers and I went to Pookie call me. You got to go to comedy union uh, this Saturday and you got a crush I'll give you a half hour set now the set for next level is an 18 minute set yeah. that's all it is because yep. you have three minutes interview with Kevin Hart 18 sets which in four, in four sections right so that's easy that's not even a feature a feature spot yep so the question became like what do I choose for material and so I was given a half hour comedy unit I had a bunch of papers I'm like, and they were filming me and I was like why are you filming me it's like well, we just want to, you know, just for the records. I was like, okay. And then I was walking away. Dakara Williams, who did Next Level, she went up to the... She's said, so she, funny. She said, she goes, are you taping me? And the woman said, oh, we don't have to tape you. And I was like, what is going on? What yeah. do you mean you have to tape me? I've already been selected to do it. Yeah. I've already had pay or play contract. So... um Am I auditioning now? Because yeah. I had papers. I was going to work out different jokes and go oh, through no. it. I wasn't going to do... By the way... You're th 30 minutes. The recording was... And I, A, I didn't have to do 30 minutes on the set. But the recording was a month after this. So to me, I'm like, up oh, until yeah. a week before, you should be fine, right? 100%. Um, and I, I fell into this trap where... It was an all a comedy union, right? Yep. So it was an all black crowd. There were two white people, and a lot of my jokes work work best best with a mixed crowd. Mixed crowd. Because I want to implicate everyone in what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. I want to implicate white people, implicate black people. But if it's all black, it's it's sort of a different feel. Yep. I mean, by all black, I mean 100. percent So only two white people. I'm like, okay, cool. I can kind of use this. Um, and it wasn't like a super packed crowd. And I started doing these jokes, and I wasn't bombing. But a half hour of reading from pages, it was hard to corral. And I knew, at one point I look at the tape, I go, Pookie, don't worry, I'll, I'll get it. It's just, I'm going through some, trying to figure some shit out. Yeah. Um, and I think I fell into the trap of trying so much, not to pander, but I was trying to be so self-deprecating. Yeah. And uh, tell jokes about how it sucks to be white and I wish I was black and black people are so much cooler that I think it started resonating as disingenuous Got to them it. because they're like, look, man, you are part of the power structure. Yeah. So you saying that you're this lonely, this lowly victim yeah. of circumstance, it wasn't ringing true or it didn't like have this. Because when I first started doing Chocolate Sunday, you know, I would just go right to the belly of the beast. I would just say the most, I was like, not like racist jokes because I don't think they're racist, but jokes that, involve a lot of stereotypes about white people black people and those jokes were getting rewarded in those but i was like i don't want to do that so i kept trying to make myself and a friend of mine who saw the show was like he goes you're you're, you're doing something wrong by being that self-deprecating because they're looking at you as as like a white man that they want to like and they want to know your perspective as a white man in this room they don't want to hear you like lowering yourself to feel like you can connect to them Got it. So it struck them as inauthentic, right? Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll work on it. I didn't hear from Pookie that day, the next day, anything else. A week later, I'm about to do a show at the Urban Improv. Pookie calls me. Like seven, I'm about to go on stage. He's like, Bill, you got to go to Comedy Union tomorrow on Wednesday, and you have to crush. You have to crush on a Wednesday Comedy Union. And I was like, oh, I'm going on stage, Pookie. Let, let, me, let me call you back. And then I thought about it. I was like, a Wednesday Comedy Union is going to be an empty crowd. Yeah. So, and if I go there and there, and I have to do a half hour in front of 10 black people who don't know me and don't necessarily want to like me, and I'm still trying to work out the kinks because we have three weeks to go, um, it, it might not go well. Yeah. So I said, I'm not going to do that, Pookie. I'm going to tape a set at the Laugh Factory and I'll submit it to you and then you can go from there. And 
I won on at the end of a show after it was a Toronto show. I don't want to shit talk Toronto, but he <laughs> did like fucking like ten hours, ten minutes of crowd work before he brought me up. He added another comic. Yeah. So I went at the two hour mark and went to two thirty, and it was fine. I mean, nice. I did okay. Nice. But you know how it is if you're doing a set that's prepared set that involves no crowd work. Uh huh. You just have to do your lines, um, and everyone else is doing crowd work. It, it's a weird. The room isn't built for what you're trying to. You're trying to accomplish an objective. Yeah. Of filming. So, um, and if I could go into crowd work and make it fun, I would, but I was like, I got to do my set because I got to turn it in. Yeah. And it was still fine. I still felt like it should, I should get quote unquote passed or yeah. they should agree to it. Um, and then Pookie called me a week later and said, listen, man, we can't, we can't use you this, this year. We're going to use you next year. And I was like, Pookie, Dang. man, like I, 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 it just, it just bummed me out because clearly from the beginning, someone was like, who's this guy? Yeah. You know, anyway, and, that's. And, and Pookie knows. Your credibility, yours knows your skill. Yeah, everyone at the Laugh Factor does. Everyone in Hollywood does. So, you know, but it, yeah, that's tough. That's and a he tough said, situation. and he said to me, he goes, you know, he goes, you used to just fucking smash. He goes, I don't know what happened. Why aren't you? Why aren't you doing that material? Because, like I said, the centerpiece was the vegan shit and the yeah. PC shit, and um, and I think there was a part of me that was like, I don't want to go up there and do, I don't want to do once you go white, your vagina stays tight. Yeah. Once you go pale, you never have to post bail. <laughs> I don't want to break dance. I, 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 which is a lot of stuff I used to do like real physical break dancey. Yep. Um, urban stuff. And I was like, I just kind of want to like be an adult now as a 40 year old. I want to kind of like, um, yeah. So, but me and Pookie are so cool. At the time I was like, that's fucked up. But yeah. clearly somebody, Somebody had it in for me. Pookie never told me who it was, but uh, it didn't work out. I don't know. It's fine. It's a, nice. it's a tough sting to, I mean, in reality, any performance, it, that's the tough part about stand-up. I mean, some performances go from one, one show to the next, and especially if you're, if you're trying to prepare for something that's going to be taped, audience doesn't know it and you're trying to like get get some some reps in mm -hmm. it's just a whole different circumstance than just like being able to do crowd work and keep that room hot you know it's just a different, different yeah vibe i've always felt that way about tv in general as a stand-up because you have a, a set particularly if you're doing late night tv you have yeah. five or six minutes and it is completely organized and vetted and they yeah. know exactly where you're not going off reservation at all for that shit yep and there's no room for crowd work or None. improvisation so um and it's not the experience of actually being a stand-up comic and i've always like wow the, what you see on tv is not authentic extremely to the experience. polished yeah um and every once in a while you'll see a comic who do a crowd work set and they'll have a special and that's cool but anyway um I, I did want to address something you were talking about when when my um that kind of is similar we were talking about. So when my dad said that about my girlfriend and the Bible and the Tower of Babel separate the right all that shit. Uh -huh. Um he wasn't one of those super adamant like you can't be, he was just like he just recommended I don't do it. Mhm. Mm so when my father would go with my girl my father and my mother would go with my girlfriend to like football games or soccer games when I'd perform and they would take her into the stands, they would start getting looks. Wow. And it made them very protective of Kira. Did they change their tune a little Completely. bit? Completely. That's awesome. Completely. Because yeah. they didn't they didn't get it. And then they were like people were like looking at them like, what are you doing with this this black girl? Like and they were like, This is this is my boy's girlfriend. What do you what do you get? What you got beef? Yeah. <laughs> and they and there's all these sort of like veiled racist tropes that and my parents look I love my parents they're great yeah I talk about and my my act my, my best joke from quarantine is um my dad's a Trump supporter my brother's a cop and my mom's name is Karen that's a honky hat trick right there <laughs> um but they're they're great people my mom's thing was well I just worry about the children yeah I worry about the children that's yeah. what I worry about I'm like what you're gonna worry that we're gonna make a great power forward in the yeah. NBA like <laughs> I I feel like being a biracial child is actually kind of a pretty good gig these days you know i mean that may sound stupid and entitled on my part but um i i think that the bigger the gene pool the healthier and usually more athletic and the more the yeah. less disease prone everything like i had i used to have a jewish girlfriend she was ashkenazi jew i don't know if you know anything about the jews but they have 13 genetic markers for disease wow. ashkenazi jews so all of her Jewish friends and family were like, don't marry Bill. He's not Jewish. But she had a geneticist 
because of all these markers and her genetics is like he's scotch irish breed with him that's amazing that's what you got to do so um so you grew up in redondo beach yeah and when you were in redondo beach in high in high school and elementary school everyone knew that you were black right did well, you hang yeah, out with it, black kids my, or my white kids? first uh yeah, uh, specifically, my parents. Um, we, my dad was our football coach from Pop Warner from third grade on. Oh wow! And we had right in the city next to us was Lawndale. At the time, it was a lot rougher than it is now. Even though right now it's still very multicultural, I would say predominantly black and Hispanic. But all of my teammates were were of mixed ethnicity. And then we went to play baseball. They they had us play for a team in Hawthorne which is a few cities over and which is mostly uh, a black and Hispanic town. So just consciously they in, surrounded us in ethnicities that were different than just white. Yeah. And that was by choice because my dad did not want us to grow up with just a white. For we were sure. going to get that anyway. Yeah. Anybody's going to get the white version. And of you had life. brothers and sisters. Yeah. Were they also same skin tone or did some? Yeah. Okay. For the most part. Because a friend of mine, Eric Blake, you know, I did that video, How White Man Says N-Word to a Black Man. He was, did you see that video? Uh-uh. You never saw that video? No. It got like crazy viral. I'll show it to you afterwards. But um, he married an Italian woman. Uh-huh. They have four kids. Three of the kids are clearly black and he yeah. has a son who looks like an Italian soccer player. Wild. So- This um, stuff happens sometimes. And so they would, Eric says people would come up to him and go like, so who's that boy who has that black sister? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you mean the black boy with the black sister, my son? Yeah. So that's the thing about that's the thing about melanin that people don't get. First of all, this whole thing, this whole conversation about race is made up because we all have melanin. Yes. Some people have more of it than others. That is the scientific basis of of people who have black skin, people who have white skin, we all have melanin. Some people just have more of it. And that to me is just so wild how pigmentation in your skin could represent all of these social calamities that we've created. Yeah. You know, and whereas the, those are three siblings and the one of them gets probably way different treatment than the other two, which, and they're the same parents. Yeah. And they got to figure this whole thing out walking around on a daily basis. Yeah. But back to like my childhood was my dad did, whenever we got sick, but we were well enough to like, just stay awake for like four hours. He would take us to like some black movie, something like we, uh, I recall begging him to watch some cartoon when I was sick. And he was like, no, you're coming to watch the movie glory with Morgan Freeman. What a great movie. Down to Washington. And I'm kicking and screaming on my way into the damn movie theater. And I left going, that movie was amazing. <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, he would he did the same thing with do the right thing i recall one day he pulled us out of school so we can go watch the T tuskegee airmen speed yeah um so he was he was not silent about any of that stuff yeah and it was I, i'm putting together a 30 minute to an hour of of just black material because of of just in thinking about all of my experiences there's just a lot of them yeah like growing up Whenever my dad would get pissed at my brother, myself, or my sister, he would say, get your little black asses in here. <laughs> and I'm looking, like, the picture of me growing up, you'd think that I had blonde, curly hair like I was straight from the beach. <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself, like, who is he talking to? But also, like, not questioning who he was talking to based on his tone, you know? Yeah. But, like, knowing that that's what he was called growing up, like... That's just how you talk to your kids. Get your little black ass in here. Like that was how <laughs> I was addressed my entire childhood. Yeah. So it would it never occurred to me who I was not, except for like looking in the mirror, being like, I know that my skin's white, and I know that if somebody makes a black joke, it's gonna piss me off to some degree. Sure. And um, the one time it re that really reared its head was I got into an argument in fourth grade with this guy in the lunch lunchroom and it was just something like you can't hold seats for someone else and i wanted to sit down he's like you can't sit here because someone else is here i'm like you can't hold seats and like we got into this argument next thing he moves my lunch tray next thing you know like he pushed me while call while, while calling me the n-word with a hard r yeah wow and i instinctively to this day i don't even remember 
my knee jerk reaction was to punch him in the nose. Yeah. And it like exploded his nose and bro- it broke it everywhere with blood everywhere. I'm in the fourth grade. This is not like I, I wasn't a trained fighter. I just knew that he called me a word that like resonated immediately and yeah. it was just an immediate punch. Yeah. And so um, that was like a, a very visceral moment where I was like, you know, that's about, a life-changing moment right there. At the very at an early age, but once again, like we my my dad was very conscious about how we were raised with regards to the culture. Um, but then like I went to church at a uh, white Catholic church in Manhattan Beach for uh, since childhood and then when I was 19, I went to a Pentecostal apostolic black church in Carson for 10 wow. years. So that was the only time where I felt my own skin color because I walked into this church and there was maybe three others, uh, people with white skin, out of probably 150 or 200. And I looked around for like five minutes. I was like, wow, this is just, it's just me and these other folks. Yeah. And then five minutes into it, I'm like, ain't nobody paying attention to me. Yeah. They're focusing on what this guy's saying in the music. And, th- and then it was like all good. But And even uh, if they thought that you were just a quote unquote white boy, yeah. they're like, He's here. To, he's here. He's here. We're happy he's here. Yeah. And that's the thing that a lot of white people don't understand is just how fast black folks will mess with you if you're just cool. Just yeah. be normal cool. You don't have to do extra stuff. You don't have to say brother. You don't have to do just be a, just be your normal cool self yeah. and be cordial, basic cordial. And they'll be like, oh, okay. Even just saying hello. Yeah. Is all that it needs for a black folk person to be like, this person's down with us. Yeah. That's it. That's so true. There, there are two things I want to touch on regarding that. When I would do the chocolate Sunday show, I would never go to the after party. Yeah. First of all, because no one was like, Bill, we're going to the after party. Let's go. Because yeah, I probably yeah, yeah. would have. I didn't seek it out. I, and I'm also not that guy. I don't really go out after that party, much. I don't yeah, party. Yeah. I, use, I don't drink anymore. So... Um, but I found out through the grapevine that some people thought that that ma- that I was racist because I wouldn't do it. That I wasn't wow. like, well, he'll do these jokes, but he won't fuck with us. And I was yeah. like, man, that's not my experience. I'll do it if anyone ever asked me to. So the last time I did Chuck Sunday in Oakland, I was like, I'm going to go to the after party just to be. And I had a great time. But uh, the second thing, God damn, I'm losing my train of thought about that. Uh, Oh, fuck. About going to the after party. And oh, so Tony Rock had a, had a birthday party. Tony Rock and I was so in the, funny. I was in the lobby of, and I, I used to do this as a bit. I still might bring it back, but Tony Rock was like, yeah, man, it's my birthday. And he was there with his entourage. He's always got the entourage. Hot black women, yeah. cool black dudes. He said, we're going to the club. And he just looked at me and go, you coming, Dawes? You coming, Dawes? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> and there was this girl with me, and we went to... Um, of uh, 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 all black club he had the bottle service you know and same thing i was like i'm not gonna try to break dance i'm not gonna raise the roof i'm just gonna sit there with my drink chill and just chill and be behind my girl just kind of like you know yeah just kind of kind of bobbing yeah that's all i fucking did i didn't say shit i just drank when they offered me a drink yeah i fucking danced a little bit to the music with my girl and that was it and by the end of it man they were like man bill dolls you cool as fuck man and he go and tony says he goes listen man Anybody fucks with you, you let me know. I'll roll over. I'll take care of it. Love I was it. like, thanks, man. And I'm, I walk like 10 feet further. And another black dude, I forget his name, comes like, yo, man, you cool, dude. Anyone fucks with you, you let me know. And then I was like, is something going to happen to me? <laughs> Am I in danger right now? So the joke I said is like, so I, you know, I, I walked to my like car, like look around, something, what the fuck? And I'm driving and uh, I was a little drunk from the club and I got pulled over by a cop. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, shit, man, this cop's coming. I called Tony. Tony, man, I just got pulled over by the police. Hello? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Maybe that joke will resonate better now. But uh, yeah, exactly what you said, man. You just don't don't try to... And, and I would see that sometimes at Chocolate Sunday. I don't want to name names, but there are comics who go up there and they would just play like... They would start kind of changing their accent a bit. It's and, not... If you try the black scent... Yeah. It, it will be sniffed out so fast... Yeah. Be whatever original person, authentic person that you are going to be. Yeah. And then that's all that needs to happen. Yeah. You know? Um, oh, my gosh. So you're talking about Tony Rock and the, the cop pulling over. Tehran, uh, if your audience knows Tehran, he runs a, a couple of shows at the Laugh Factory, very well known out here. And he's a good friend of mine. He's half black, half Persian. Yeah. And he looks like a light-skinned black guy. That's his, that's his uh, uh, ethnic breakdown. 
And um, Teron always tells me, and I hate you for this, Teron. He always tells audiences, if we're on the same show, that I always want to try to use the N-word, which I absolutely <laughs> never do. It's not something I have any desire to do. I That's not my word. It's not white people's word. But he always insists as a part of this joke. And Teron always says, yeah, Todd always wants to use the N-word. And it's like, Todd, man, you can't do that. Look at your skin color. He goes, put it this way. If you and I were driving, a cop pulls us over. And the cop, and you're driving, cop comes up to the the side and asks you take out your license n-word you're gonna be like he's talking to you n-word <laughs> <laughs> that was a good joke yeah and <laughs> anytime he says it after he comes up after me people love it and but it's so true but know your lane if you're a white person or any other ethnicity besides black do not use the n-word it's not your word yeah it's those are the clean and simple rules to it for sure for and you sure. see mexican people use it you see samoan people use it you see white people use it singing along to rap just don't use it yeah it's not your word yeah i get that but for someone like you i mean it is your word technically right i mean uh, the the difference is this the black black having black skin is a different experience than having white skin sure and i know what my experience is based off of how I grew up and how my father grew up and how my grandfather grew up. But I didn't have, I didn't personally have that same experience because I don't have the same skin tone. So that is the separator. Now, on your driver's license, does it say black? Uh, it says white. Oh, it says white. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, because I was going to say, great way to promote the show is take a picture of your driver's license says <laughs> says black on it. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I have a picture of uh, my... What about your passport? 19, when I was 19... Uh -huh. I specifically grew out a full afro. I was like, you know what? I'm proud of who I am, and yeah. I'm growing out an afro. And that was when I was playing football at Long Beach City College, when our team was probably 80% black. Yeah. And I was like, I'm here, and what are you going to do? Like, you couldn't tell me nothing at the time. Yeah. I was stronger than a freaking ox, running fast. I was one of the starters on the team. Sure. I'm growing out an afro. What are you going to tell me? Yeah, you know? for sure. And that was on my driver's license, and I was pretty proud of that. So for the next 10 years, anytime I show my driver's license to anyone, I had a full afro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, you, as, as as black as my driver's license got. So obviously, you, you were an athletic guy. Was that sort of like what you wanted to do at one oh, point? Oh, yeah. All I wanted, I, I dreamt, I started really dreaming hard about playing in the NFL when I was... Uh, uh, between my junior and senior year in high school. Yeah. And, and you were that good, huh? No. It was just like, <laughs> I, I just loved football so much, I never wanted to stop playing it. Sure. Um, I ended up uh, being becoming a starter at Long Beach City, and we were you know ranked in the state and in the, in, the, in the country and stuff like that. I got injured my sophomore year. I ended up going to a Division three school, which is not exactly NFL and, material. And Long Beach College is Division One. Uh, that's a junior college. Junior college, okay. Yep, uh, Division Three University in mm -hmm. Portland with, you know, uh, a bunch of people who were really loved academics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we had some good ballers. So you're probably we, the star of the team then. We, I, I was one of the, the good players on the team for sure. Yeah, what did you play tight end? Uh, I played uh, corner. Corner, okay. Yep, corner Oh, so return. you're fast, yeah. 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 So um, we had some good players for sure, but our team as a, as a whole wasn't exactly like, you know, making ESPN. Yeah. Um, but then after graduation, I, I kept training and I, uh, I got an agent from my old church. Uh, shout out to Martin Prince, who got me a tryout with the uh, LA Avengers. And they uh, signed me up to go to training camp for their uh, development. Is LA arena. Avengers uh, arena football? Arena football, yeah. Uh -huh. And then uh, they had me go play for this uh, team in Bakersfield where I quickly realized that if you're not getting that much money to get your head kicked around in the arena leagues, for sure. uh, this could be a life-threatening sport yeah. if you know there's not enough money attached to it. So that was the end of my career. But then, Did you play with the Avengers for a bit? Uh, for the Bakersfield Blitz, only in training camp. Only training camp. Yeah. Was there a moment where you just got hit real hard? You're like, fuck this. No, it wasn't really that. I just kind of realized that like 300 bucks for the week wasn't yeah. going to cut it, you know. Of course, with, yeah. With bills plus like living in a hotel and it was just like, you know. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to be a, a professional soccer player for a bit and I went to Princeton to play soccer JV wow. and the coach at the time was Bob Bradley who ended up coaching the World Cup team. to Princeton. Yeah, I know. I used to be smart. That's amazing. And um, th there's a funny story to that too, which sort of involves uh, sort of involves the African American experience because my school, being a predominantly black school, didn't have anyone 
in it who went to Princeton. Yeah. And my older brothers are both real geniuses. I mean, I'm like, I'm smart-ish, but like they're Goodwill Hunting. When I saw Goodwill Hunting, I was like, Jim, there's a movie about you. Wow. Because he was a fucking genius with a photographic memory who was also a fucking delinquent. Wow. And got in trouble because we also had that like fucking white trash Irish drunk gene <laughs> going on. Um, and uh, they, were, they were so fucking smart and they all got rejected by Princeton. So my English teacher used to write for the Washington Post and he wrote an article in the Post about how Princeton is elitist and he kind of hinted at Princeton being racist yeah. and how these great students, Don Dawes and Jim Dawes, were getting rejected by Princeton despite the fact that Jim got 1,600 on his SATs. Don was, they were both valedictorians out of high school. And the next year, I was not valedictorian. The next year, I got into Princeton. So I think I was kind of like a quota. You know oh, what wow. I mean? Yeah. So uh, believe me, I didn't, I didn't have a stellar academic career at Princeton, though. It was not bad. Now, one thing I want to talk to you about as well is um, another joke I talk about when you hear about the rise of white supremacy and the rise of Nazism. I would do a joke where I'd say, I don't know if you've seen this, where I go, I don't think Nazis are on the rise. They're not. I'm six foot tall, 200 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. I've never once been recruited to be in the fucking Nazi party. <laughs> you think at one point someone come back, hello, would you, like hear, would you like to hear more about the organization? <laughs> and I've never really had anyone. I think one time in my life I did a, a, a TV show, a failed TV show called Feds, and I played a skinhead. And I had them shaved, and they like put magic markers, swastikas on me and shit. Yep. And I had, there were extras who were in the the um what do you call it when you're in court the people in this the pews in court yeah they're watching you and some ball guy came and he started to go hey man yeah man are you uh what do you think about being a white person like he was i realized later that he was trying to recruit me into some sort of like white nationalist thing but that was the only time in my life anyone ever talked to me like wink wink nudge nudge off, what do you off camera he was off camera wow yeah. he was like an extra wow but he was clear he was bald i mean how many white bald people are you going to get like in their 20s yeah that don't identify that way not a lot i mean i shaved it for a role yeah but um so that was anyway that was very edifying but in my life i never experienced it i my my college roommate for four years was black and we would go places like to florida for spring break and stuff and every once in a while some some southern would be like hey man how the day i was all day and some and some n-word came up and blah blah blah, like right in front of my roommate oh, yeah. and he wouldn't even do it consciously so i'm for some from your end did you ever have people speak to you in a way thinking that you're white where you had to be like by the way motherfucker i'm black yeah and what you're saying is is that yeah no happened? there's been I, dozens dozens upon dozens of those circumstances even just probably hanging out with a group of white people hanging they make out a with a group of white joke. friends and it's 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 usually always some passive um passive aggressive a dig at the black community yeah. or about some joke that they don't think is that big of a deal with regards to the black black culture or the black experience. Yeah. And those things, you know, I I have to in in a lot of cases measure like the severity of what's being said mm-hmm. and what needs to be addressed, but like honestly, now uh my threshold for all that stuff is just it's low. Sure. And um those things are people think people don't think microaggressions are a big deal. Yeah, they'll hear that term microaggression. They're like, oh, that's some some uh, snowflake liberal com- uh, element. But if you look at how anybody reacts to a dig at them, it doesn't matter what the dig is. If you take dig after dig after dig after dig, and that's all you're hearing all the time. Oh, oh, you're the token black friend. Oh, oh, you're you're the quota person. Or you're the you're the uh, um, the what's the uh, the choice that you have to make it like if you're hiring people um, affirmative action. Affir- oh, you're the affirmative action, whatever. Those things wear on someone. They don't. Yeah. Make, they make people feel unwelcome somewhere. Imagine I, I take it back to when I walked in that church for the first time, and I was the only time I felt my my skin color. Mm-hmm. Most black folks that who live or operate in white neighborhoods know the color of their skin because they have to look around and know who's my ally or not. Yeah, and so I it, it, it is a, it is part of the the burden of of what I have is to is to tell people what's okay and what's not, and to be agitated in that moment enough to be like, do you know what you're what you're doing, and why it's not okay? Yeah, and um, that's that, and that's how you address it. 
with them to some to some degree depending on how harsh you know if i have to meet someone at their level which i try not to do because a lot i've really understood that a lot of people just don't know what they don't know if yeah. they were born in um uh oklahoma somewhere or if they're born in, in Sioux Falls, Idaho, or Iowa, or whatever Sioux Falls state is in, yeah, and they've never had black friends, or the only knowledge of black people are what they get in the media, or or what they know about rap music, or what they know about movies, or what they've seen in the movie or the show Cops, or whatever. That's literally all that they know about black people. You don't have any understanding of the culture, For so. Sure all your assessment and all the things that come out of your mouth are based off of that knowledge. You have to have super patience with those people because they just don't get it. Yeah, for sure. And they don't have any empathy to what it's like to be black in this, in this country. I don't know a hundred percent what it's like to be black because you don't, I don't have to walk around with black skin 24 seven Yeah, to know that like, if I get pulled over, I, I I'm genuinely in fear for my life. My dad, when we were young was like just don't ever have to deal with the cops because you don't know what's going to happen wow you know what i'm saying like that was his permanent fear that's most black folks permanent fear and so that's not the talk how many white people know what the talk is the talk is something that a black parent has with their black child which is to say that if you get pulled over this is what you have to, have do. to do and in some cases even if you do that your your civil rights or your personal safety will still be compromised yeah and so when people make those ridiculous jokes or what they think is funny or what they think is culturally okay in that social circle to me i have to have the patience that they don't have any understanding about all of what i just talked about for sure so how hard am I going to come at this person who might be hearing it for the first time ever? Exactly. And I think that's, that's really smart of you. And I think that, I mean, it's a perfect segue into the world right now in America right now. Yeah. Because Black Lives Matter is sort of uh, confusing to a lot of people. Confusing right? to a lot it's of people. It's confusing to black people as well. Yeah. I do this app called Stereo. Check it out. Go to Stereo app and I should get paid. Um, and I've talked to, you would be floored by how many black trump supporters i've talked to on this app yeah i couldn't believe it i thought there were four of them maybe yeah kanye west and three other guys that you've never heard of seriously but there's so many of them and partly what this guy was explaining to me he goes you got to understand that traditional black communities are socially conservative a lot of them are super conservative yeah socially they they don't really fuck with lgbtq the shirt the church i went to was openly hostile against homosexuality yeah in the church like conservative would be the 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 in terms of social aspect 100 percent. yeah and they believe in you know even if you have a single mother whatever it is they believe in the integrity of a family oh yeah and and try to try to get married through wedlock i mean they, they have real traditional values that represent a lot of conservative values baked into black culture because it's a it's a community about trying to survive in a harsh world and trying to make ends meet and and not so they don't have the luxury to yeah. be as progressive yeah because they gotta they gotta toe the line and make things work and provide for their family mind your own damn business is what a lot of them are, are, are doing yeah and that's what that's what drives me nuts about people's perceptions of the black culture you don't know anything about it if all you've got from is tv movies radio for sure and that's one of the things that is frustrating right now and I'm, i want to know your take on it because i feel that there's a couple things going on first of all there's a disconnect going on between the coasts of america yeah and us in hollywood and people in new york yeah who look at us who we think we're educated liberal progressive yep and we want to move the for world forward in a better way yeah and we cannot understand why there's this huge swath of america that's voting for trump we're like aren't you looking at what this guy's saying mm -hmm. aren't you looking at what he's doing so the monolithic idea that a lot of people have a lot of coastal elites have is well they're just racist they're just evil they're just racist they're white supremacists white nationalists whatever it is and like you said most of them are just ignorant and they turn on the tv they turn on fox news yeah and they say they say cities on fire Right? That's all they see. Never been to a protest. I've been to protests in three different cities. I've seen Black Lives Matter in a, a full gamut of it. I've yet to see an aggressor 
but apparently, you know, it's not going to, if it bleeds, it leads is a common news uh, phrase. Yeah. You're not going to put something on television. Oh, a bunch of Black Lives Matter people are just peacefully walking down the street holding signs. That's not going to get anyone's attention or get viewers. Yeah. And there's also the problem that you have a lot of white people. I mean, I, I'm not a Candace Owens fan. Yeah. But sometimes I'll go, I'll listen to her because that is a unique perspective. Well, you have to. Yeah, you have Under, to. Understand where, where she's coming from to understand where they're coming from. And W.E.D. Du Bois famously said, the problem of the 20, 20th century is the color line. And is it the problem of the 21st century, the color line? That remains to be seen. But she says the problem of the 21st century is white guilt. Because white guilt is fueling people to act in a way that is sort of surprisingly condescending to black communities um and it has played out culturally in in, in interesting ways for yeah. example um aunt jemima being removed oh my gosh yeah they're t- they're uh or or the the nfl is singing the black national anthem instead of the national anthem oh i didn't know the black oh national yeah anthem. yeah yeah exactly that anything but the issue anything th- this is my take on the uh, the social issue at large with regards to Black Lives Matter, with regards to folks like Candace Owens, the Hodge twins, Joel Patrick, uh, Officer Tatum. I watch all of these guys. Yeah. These are black Trump supporters. Yeah. They have every right to vote for whoever they want to. Obviously, that's what our country is built around, democracy. If you, want, if you like this person and their politics, go for it. Go nuts. Just because they have black skin does not make them beholden to the Democratic Party. Does not make... That's it. No, no problem. Candace Owens, all these people who I just mentioned, uh, they talk about the fact that um, there is no oppression. Look at me. I, I'm doing well. There's lawyers who do well. There's... Uh, real estate people, black people who do well. There's uh, famous athletes. There's people in high places in the black community. All of that, 100% is true. Nobody would even argue that. It would be ridiculous to do so. And it's they're also right, a thousand percent, to say that you, you shouldn't be a white person pitying black people. A thousand percent. It would be ridiculous to do so because in most cases, black folks are out there doing better than you if you're the one trying to pity them. Yeah. Okay. They're doing, they've got, they might have wife and kids. They're killing it financially. They're doing their thing. What the Candace Owens, the Officer Tatums, Joel Patricks, all these people are not addressing. They're not addressing the things that the Black Lives Matter movement came out against abject police brutality. In, in a, uh, it, it, an abundance of police contact for black people and brown people versus white. Yes. Um, sentencing that is more aggressive on black people and brown people versus white. Um, prosecution rates that are higher, that are more aggressive on black and brown people versus white. And these things are systemic in that they have been happening over a long amount of time and they are institutional in that they exist from the Supreme Court down to state courts down to all of the different levels of the judicial system. Yeah. Stemming all the way back since the Jim Crow era ended and it transformed itself into the criminal justice system. There was a switch and they don't want to talk about that because they have no ammunition against it. So, a thousand percent. I agree with Candace Owens and Officer Tim, Joel Patrick, who they say, how are you going to tell me I'm oppressed? I own a business. How are you going to tell me I'm oppressed? I'm a, I've, uh, black people are lawyers. Black people are, are, are living uh, fruitful lives. Yes, a hundred percent. But those same black people have the potential of more, co- of more issues with police brutality, of more issues with if you get arrested, you're going to get your, your child is going to be prosecuted as an adult if they get arrested at 16 or 15. Yeah. And that's not happening to white folks. And that's exactly the issue that they're not going to address because they don't have any talking points to disprove that. Yeah. So, on the one hand, 100%, I agree with a lot of what they're saying, but they're talking but they don't address the major issue of the Black Lives Matter movement which they can't because the statistics and the evidence is a overwhelming against anything else but being in agreements with it. For sure. Now, is that based on legal precedents? Because the law right now, there's no law that obviously fosters discrimination, right? So is it just sort of an implicit bias that no, goes it's on? The Supreme, it, it's, there's no law that fosters discrimination except for the Supreme Court having shot down any attempts 
from any state of any study of any legal scholar that suggests that racial bias was implicit with the hundreds of arrests yeah. from the CHP, the hundreds of arrests from uh, the DEA going onto buses and doing illegal, illegal search and seizures and them only looking at black and brown people. Yeah. And ACLU, any number of legal scholars and people have looked into this and said, statistically, these officers are pulling over more black people. Mm -hmm. Statistically, the officers are, are asking illegal search and seizure is against the 14th Amendment. And but they're doing it, and and this is an invasion of their civil rights, and they're doing it more to black people. They have more points of contact, uh, stop and frisk in New York, sure, broken window policy in New York. All that stuff was unconstitutional, and it was mostly on black and brown people. But the Supreme Court, from the top down of our country, struck it down to say that there was even racial bias at all, unless it is explicitly proven that a cop walks in and goes, yeah, I pulled this over because he was black. No cop's ever going to say no that. No cop's ever going to say that, of course. Never. But we got the stats to prove that they're only pulling over black people. Yeah. But white people and black people do drugs at the same exact rate, except black people are the only ones going to get contacted. Bill, you and I, we probably at some point had uh, marijuana or cocaine in our, in our pocket. Oh, if we sure. got pulled over the same degree that black folks did, you and I would have been in jail the same damn way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I, I went to jail in central booking in uh, Brooklyn, right? Yeah. Which is the transfer point to Rikers and a lot of oh my gosh. big prisons. You don't want that. So I was there for 26 hours for jumping a turnstile because they had a whole thing. They had a whole sweep of people. Oh, yeah. And I didn't have my ID on me because it's a misdemeanor. But because yep. I didn't have my ID, they had to process me. They'd book me. And I went into this, and I was fucking terrified, right? I was one of two white people, maybe three or four white people in this, in these crowded cells. So they just move you back and forth, and upstairs, downstairs. Um, and I started, I just kind of kept my head. I was wearing a suit because I was on a date. I looked like a fucking asshole. Yeah. And I just pretended I was just a drunk, like, and I yeah. kind of kept my head down in fetal position in the corner. And I was hearing these stories, people talking about. And this one guy's like, "Yeah, man, this cop busted me with a joint." A joint. And this is my third strike. So this is when the third strike policy was in existence, which I think has doesn't really exist anymore, the third strike policy, or maybe it does. But that seemed like something that, again, it's implicitly racist, the third strike policy, because cops are going to have more contact. The, the chance of getting you know arrested for a joint as a black man is more than as a white guy. Here's, here's exactly, you hit the nail on the head. This guy's talking about getting arrested for a joint. Now that's his third strike. They were coming down so hard on dr on drugs, a joint, yeah. which is a completely arbitrary drug. Alcohol was illegal in the twenties. Marijuana is legal, no different now. It completely arbitrary for no other uh, for no other reason than it's a financial boon. But that's a whole other subject. Yeah. Think about the implications here, and here's where systemic and institutional racism exists a thousand percent because you mentioned three three strikes rule but what you don't know is that the crime bill that bill clinton signed and authorized because he needed to in order to appear more tough on crime to right-wing conservatives he authorized the single harshest criminal bill of all time that included if you had a felony record or arrested or any of that stuff at all you were stricken from public housing period end of story wow i didn't know that so People talk about three strikes as if it's going to land you in jail for life, but one strike against you, and if they want to quantify uh, a possession of drugs as a felony, and you live in public housing, guess what? You're n you're now not only ineligible for public housing, but for uh, food food stamps, for all these different things. So now you're ineligible for housing, and you've got a felony in your record. How hard is it to get a job? Pretty hard, right? Oh, yeah. Also, if you have that felony, and... Your family knows about it. Your grandmother knows about it. Your auntie knows about it. All those different things. They know that if you do something, if they house you, and you do something even at all, they're they're implied with it. They, they're aiding and abetting a criminal? They're aiding and abetting a Jesus. criminal. So they can also get removed from their Section 8 housing. All those different things. So that's, that's when I say, Kenneth Owens, Joel Patrick has nothing on these realities. Yeah. Because... They don't want to actually address the real issues of where policing exists and it's existing and harsher and more aggressive in those black communities than it is in white communities. I grew up in Redondo Beach. I 
uh, was a bouncer in Hermosa Beach. You think I didn't see people doing ecstasy and cocaine? Of course. You think the Hermosa Beach Police Department can ransack our uh, our club after a, a weekend of AVP volleyball tournament? Every single one of them was high out of, out of their minds like cocaine. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. But they don't do that because that is an affluent neighborhood. People are lawyers. People have rights. They know their rights. You can't mess with them. Yeah, and cocaine wasn't published as harshly as crack was. Yeah, hundred to one ratio. It, uh, uh, Barack Obama got it reduced down to eighteen to one, but it should have been one to one. Yeah. If you do cocaine, it's no different than you do crack, but it was just demonized so heavily. Crack moms, this and that, all this stuff. Yeah. That's where, if people want to say that racism is not systemic or not institutional, they are factually, statistically, inaccurate. Yeah. But they don't want to hear that because they don't want to. They they can't identify a black life with theirs, which is the basis of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it's the basis. Just saying, listen, listen to us. We have a different experience, and you're not listening because you don't want to hear it because your your opinions are so heavily clouded by whatever media has told you about black people to this point, and they're just crying and shouting in the streets to say, just listen. Yeah. Now, what do you think? Uh, by the way, thank you for that. That was really amazing. Uh, as we're My talking pleasure. right now, I know you got a few few more minutes. Ironically, as we're t- there, there's a, a march for uh, a Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor, right over this billboard, right Bre- behind yeah. the. Um, I, I do want to know what do you think the solution is because that seems to be where a lot of these conversations sort of fall short. Because I understand the the uh, the problem and the emotions behind it. Yeah, of course. But looking for a pragmatic solution seems to be very elusive. Yeah, of course. I don't know, that's because there's no cohesive message yep. in BLM or with anybody. So I don't know. What do you look at as, as, a, some, as a perspective yeah. that you do? Well, I have, um, prior to going into comedy full-time, I was working for a nonprofit called ShareFest. There's a couple different ways to attack any issue. First off, where is the issue going to cause threats to, to human life the, the, at the, its most core level? And if you look at all, like Officer Daniel Pantaleo and Eric Garner, who got choked out in New York, the first I Can't Breathe was yeah. a disgusting and egregious murder in the streets. Yeah, Daniel Pantaleo probably had a dozen to 18 infractions on his police record of abuse of uh, overuse of his force. Yeah, excessive force. Yeah. Se- excessive force to black people and brown people. So we knew before that murder happened that he was a problem p- officer. It would be no hard feat for any auditor. There's auditors of taxes. There's auditors of law firms. There's auditors of all sorts of things. An outside law firm or outside agency to go in and audit who are the people that pose the most risk to black communities based off of their uh, aggressive uh, police record. Yeah. And say, you know what? You don't qualify to work here anymore. You just don't. Yeah. That alone would be enough of a good faith gesture to the black community to say, hey, we've identified this person who has been aggressive to the black community who could potentially be a guy to put a knee on someone's neck or to choke someone out with an illegal chokehold, which by the way, Daniel Pantaleo, that was an illegal chokehold that he did do. So that we don't even have to have a, a scenario like like this. Yeah, and Derek Chauvin, from my understanding, he also had a lot of infractions as well, right? A, a lot of them. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's the the basis. Who are the guys that are gonna that are, that, are, that pose the most risk? Secondly, you have to remove federal funding from these small police agencies for militarized use of force, i.e., major league SWAT SWAT teams. What people don't know is that local law enforcement has been incentivized from a federal level to have these tanks. There was an excess of Pentagon uh, finances and resources that were used in the drug war itself. Yeah. The drug war has to go. If you have, that's another thing. The drug war at its core, we're not rehabilitating anyone by putting them in jail. Mm Mm-hmm. Any person who has mar- uh, marijuana conviction of any kind, they, that has to be redeemed. Of course. Completely wiped clean. Wiped wipe clean. You also have to do something about the uh, felony box on job applications. Because the biggest issue with regards to homelessness, which is rampant in a lot of major cities, 
and people that are getting out of jail is they can't get a job and sustain themselves. They don't necessarily want to go back into this life of crime. Yeah. But they don't have an opportunity if they're labeled a felon their whole life. Yeah. So those are some very basic things that could happen right now, but you would have to it would it would require our politicians and it would require people to take an honest evaluation of where the problem exists and say maybe white folks have seriously contributed to this. Yeah, but for sure. But we can't even get to that level because you're not even listening to people who say the basic premise of Black Lives Matter because they want to invalidate it by saying, oh, they're against the core nuclear family. They're neo-Marxist. They're, they're neo-Marxist. Yeah. Well, my objection to them uh, saying, oh, Black Lives Matter are against the nuclear family. Do you know who's raising kids who have been to jail, whose parents have been to jail? The non-nuclear family. Of course. Black aunties and uncles. And grandmas, well, yeah. Black great-grandmothers. Great I'm a mentor. No, sorry, I'm, I out of privacy, I'm not going to bring them up. But uh, uh, kinship foster care is crazy amongst institutional uh, parents who have been imprisoned. Yeah. The nuclear family was dismantled for them by law enforcement yeah. in most cases. And you're going to tell me Black Lives Matter is, is wrong for having that even on their website? Wow. Give me a break. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. Hey, man, Todd, dude, I could talk to you for hours. I know you have a heart out, and we've reached your heart out. I do want to say, do you have um, – where can people go if they, if they want to help? If you're just uh, a, a white person around America, you're listening to this, and you're like, hey, I want to help out. I don't know how. What would you recommend for them to do? Where would they go? What sites? Oh, man, that is a, that is a great question. Um, if you don't know where to go and you don't have the education around, I would say there's two resources that you should watch. I would just say educate yourself because, and then, and then just Google like what are the best air, air ways to get involved in your city. But I think from an education standpoint, in order to even identify from an empathy level, you should watch 13th on Netflix or mm -hmm. YouTube. That's yeah. basis of under, understanding of black people's experience with law enforcement which is different than white folks mm -hmm. and then you should read the new jim crow those a are book called the new jim crow the new yeah. jim crow those are two basis points of education that will change your understanding of that black folks have had a different experience with law enforcement than white people awesome those are the two things and then and then look up what just look up there's so much information right now on how to get involved but if those two elements can't get you involved you need to pray about yeah. how, how your heart is closed off towards uh, someone else's experience is different than yours. Yeah, I hear you. Listen, man, I know now I'm going to like, now plug yourself for your com <laughs> and your comedy. Oh, thanks, but, man. But uh, you, you are on, um, where can people find you if they want to like? Uh, Todd Dorham on Twitter, at uh, T Dorham on Instagram, and uh, TD Comedy is my website. And you're so, on TikTok doing some dances. I'm, I'm not doing any TikTok yet. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get there at some point. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, I'm working on about 30 minutes to an hour of material about uh, the, you know, my experience with regards. Have you thought to, about doing a one man show? Um, I think I just want to I want to get something recorded that's like, from my perspective, that has 30 percent humor, 70 percent serious stuff, with with uh, uh, a mixed audience. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to probably record that in the next couple months. Awesome, man. Well, Todd, yeah. thank you so much for coming, Thanks, dude. Bill. You're great. We'll thank talk you, soon, man. man. Bye, guys.